This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this week's episode, Ben Klutze, the Director of Academic Outreach at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, speaks with Virgil Storr about bottom-up solutions for facilitating greater social trust and a generally liberal ethos. Dr. Storr is the Vice President of Academic and Student Programs and Don C. Lavoie Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He specializes in Austrian economics, culture and economic development, and economic sociology. His books include Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals? and Community Revival in the Wake of Disaster, Lessons in Local Entrepreneurship. The audio of this episode, as well as the transcript, have been slightly edited for clarity. In this episode, our conversation will focus on bottom-up approaches that facilitate social trust and other factors necessary for building and sustaining a liberal society. One important bottom-up approach is the market mechanism. We'll discuss whether markets help advance liberal values such as toleration, mutual forbearance, equality, pluralism, and perhaps civic friendships. My guest today is Professor Virgil Storr. He's Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's Vice President of Academic and Student Programs at the Mercator Center at George Mason University. He's the Don C. Lavoie Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. He's also board member of the Mercator Center. His research and writings cover a wide array of topics, including entrepreneurship, economic culture, the economics of sociology, and disaster recovery. Thank you very much, Professor Storr, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We'll be talking about the role of markets in a liberal society, but first, let's get the definitions out of the way. What are markets? Uh, Is it a physical space where people buy and sell, or is it a concept? And just as a quick sub-question to that, how are they bottom-up solutions? So I think you could think of markets in in two ways. And so you can think of them as sort of social arenas or spaces, and you could think of them as the, the kind of social orders that result from the interactions that take place in, in certain kind of places. So let me be more precise. And so you can you can think of markets as spaces, social arenas, where buying and selling is happening, where cooperation and competition is taking place. And so you can think of these can be physical spaces. You can think of something like, say, Main Street in, in a U.S. Um, city or, or, or high streets in the U.K. or a shopping mall or the stock market or the flea market in Florida or, say, an open-air market in Ghana or, say, a straw market in the Bahamas. And so they can be physical. They can also be virtual spaces, though. And so you can think of something like eBay, which is a, a virtual marketplace, or Amazon.com has become a, a, a marketplace, or Etsy, that's a marketplace. And they can also, as hinted at in your question, they can be conceptual spaces. And so you can think of something like, uh, say, the market for cars or the, the housing market, for instance. But in addition to being sort of thought of in this way as kind of these social arenas, markets can also describe, say, the social order that results when buying and selling or cooperation and competition takes place in particular kinds of spaces. And so in this way, they are emergent phenomena brought about by the bottom-up efforts of individuals trying to meet particular needs and trying to solve particular problems and challenges. And so 
you know, Vincent Thorne, the owner of my favorite bakery in, in D.C., thought that D.C. needed a vegan bakery, right? So she was, in opening up that bakery, she was trying to, to solve a particular problem, a new particular challenge. And I need to occasionally, actually more frequently than I would like to admit, satisfy my sweet tooth. And so the market for baked goods can also be thought of as the, you know, what emerges out of our interactions and the kinds of interactions of not just, you know, she and I, but sort of others in D.C. who engage in similar kinds of efforts. It seems to me that there are a few things that make markets possible. Individual autonomy, property rights, and some kind of institutional framework that facilitates the ethic and social trust necessary for people to exchange and contract. The rule of law being the key part of this, which extends the norms that people actually observe. Now, if we introduce a little bit of each of these elements, do we see people become materially better off as a result? As you suggest, markets depend on things like, say, property rights and contract enforcement and the rule of law. And as you, your question, I think, also implies that the link between these institutions and, say, material well-being, people being better off, at least uh, monetarily, is pretty robust, that that link has been well established and, and that and even the sort of like the harshest critics of markets probably don't even argue that point, that markets are connected to wealth. And it does appear that, at least from um, the work that I've done, that introducing even a little bit of these does promote material betterment. And so in the book with Jenny that, that I know we'll also talk about a little bit later, we argue that, that people can improve their lives through markets. And this is true even with the least advantage of us. And this is true even when we just offer a little bit of market activity. And, and so it does seem to be the case that even a little bit, people are able to take advantage of even that little bit and to improve their lives as a result. And in that book, Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals? There's a really interesting example that you use. You're from the Bahamas and you use an example from the colonial era where a slave, Botswain, who is given a couple of days during the week to just go out and fend for himself and offer services to different people is better off compared to others. So even in the worst of circumstances, when you introduce a little bit of these variables, it seems to change the dynamic a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, that, that example is sort of when I came upon it, it was, a, it was a really powerful example. But the experience of the Bahamas with slavery is actually a peculiar one that, that in some ways speaks to this point. And so the Bahamas, you know, slavery was attempted in the Bahamas like it was everywhere else. There was an effort to, to grow cotton. It turned out that the land in the Bahamas couldn't sustain cotton production at a particularly high level. And so you had this, this challenge that slaveholders had, which was they had property and slaves, but no way to make money off of it. And so rather than supply for the daily upkeep of their slaves, you know, however sort of base and minimum that that was sort of likely to be, what they decided to do was, you know, rather than do that, we're going to give people the right to, say, farm particular plots of land and then grow their own stuff. Um, and then we'll give them the ability to, like, participate in weekend markets. And so on the weekend, we'll let them trade if they had any surplus. And as a result of this, you end up with Bahamian blacks in the Bahamas, even while slaves, being much better off than slaves elsewhere, and even being much better off than, than free people elsewhere. And so you've got 
say life expectancy amongst uh, Bahamian blacks and Bahamas women as slaves being comparable to life expectancies of people in Europe and significantly longer than the life expectancy of slaves in, say, Jamaica or elsewhere. And so you've got that this, this you start a little bit of experience with markets, right? They get to grow their own stuff, and they, don't, they have sort of use right over a part of the plantation, they get to grow whatever crops they can grow in that period, they get to trade whatever surplus that they might have, and through that just little experience with markets, that they, they manage to improve their lives in the midst of you know, what is otherwise a horrible situation. And so, so this little bit of markets seems to be powerful in helping people to be better off. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. So what then is the link between markets and a liberal society? Is it that the, the elements that are within a market system are the same elements that foster a, a liberal society? So I think, I think those institutions you know, private property, individual autonomy that you were mentioning are important for a liberal society. But I think a liberal society, I guess, requires, I guess what I want to say is I think a liberal society requires more than robust markets. So I think liberalism requires more than just those institutions. It requires those institutions, but it requires more than that, right? And so I think liberalism has a lot to do with our relationship to government. And I think it has I think it describes certain commitments, actually, like the commitment to openness or a commitment to cosmopolitanism or a commitment to tolerance. Markets, I think, can, can cultivate some of these values, but liberalism, I think, means more than, more than markets. That's interesting. Um, we'll come back to that, but I wanted to first go back to your book, the book that you and Professor Ginny Choi co-authored, Do Markets Corrupt Our Morals? It's a defense of markets, and I'm wondering what was the motivation behind this effort to defend the markets? Because you walk readers through a series of defenses and claims that those defenses are minimalist, and in some sense, they are inadequate. What do you take to be the adequate defense of markets? So I'm, I'm going to sort of hesitate to do this, but I think I'm going to push back on your premise a little bit. Because we, we, we actually don't view the book as a defense of markets. At least that's not the book we set out to write. I'm not sure even with it existing, that that's the book that we actually did write. And so the book, as we saw it at least, asks a question that people have been asking for a long time, for as long as there have been markets, and a question that has been mostly asked by philosophers. And then it tries to say, okay, if for a social scientist would answer this question, what could social science tell us? And so the reason the book spends so much time laying out the way people have tried to defend markets on moral grounds and the way people have been critical of markets on moral grounds is basically to highlight a peculiarity in the discussion about the morality of markets that we observe. That you've got this strange thing that happens where the the people who ask that question and answer that markets do corrupt us, they make a bold accusation. They say markets are morally corrupting. Engaging in market activity makes us worse people, essentially. And then interestingly, the people who, are, who supposedly disagree with them, who the people who say they are defending markets, almost never directly respond to the charge. And so we found that peculiar, right? That you have this question that's been asked. It's an important question because if it is the case that markets are morally corrupting, that creates a challenge for us, if, particularly if we're in a world where we depend on markets for our well-being. 
So they make that, they, you know, they make a, they ask an important question. They come to a conclusion, the critics of, of markets. They say markets are morally corrupting. And the people who would supposedly defend markets don't actually respond to the critics and don't actually even attempt to offer an answer to that question at all. So we saw ourselves, you know, as trying to really make sense of that debate and trying to push the conversation ahead in, in some ways. And, and what we think we're adding to the conversation is that we're saying, what are the most compelling theories about how markets actually can work? Tell us about this question, about are markets going to be morally corrupting? Or what is the most compelling evidence that we can find about how markets have worked? Tell us about whether or not markets are morally corrupting. And so that's what we see ourselves as doing more so than setting out to defend or not defend markets on those terms. Right. That's that's an interesting point. And it seems to me that defenders of markets claim that markets are amoral. So then they, they sort of sidestep that that question at all, whether they're markets are moral or immoral. So you you guys take it a step further in trying to answer that question, which was really good to see. But these negative attitudes, thinking about the, the critiques, and there are some interesting ways that they've, they've characterized, you know, markets or capitalism, you know, they characterize the vampire capitalism or zombie, a zombie system and, and so on. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, on where these negative attitudes come from. And it's been going on for a very, very long time, but what, what generates this negative attitude towards towards market, despite the material and social benefits, you know, health, wealth, happiness, stronger communities. And now we find that, you know, younger people are becoming more comfortable, you know, moving further away from market solutions to, to problems. What are your thoughts on this? I puzzle about this a long time, and I, I don't know that I have a great answer. Shumpura says, you know, essentially we've forgotten basically how markets work. We've taken the prosperity that markets have given us for granted and that we, so now we have to sort of hyper-focus on the problems, essentially, right? And that the, because the benefits are so diffuse and, you know, sort of require and sort of difficult to really understand in some ways that we, that we sort of lost, you know, we sort of don't know that by criticizing markets, by maybe trying to eliminate markets, we might be killing the goose that lays the golden egg. So that's that's the kind of view. I don't know for sure. I mean, I think that for me, I'm not sure that people really are have negative attitudes towards markets per se. I think that there's a dissatisfaction, maybe even an increased dissatisfaction that we see now. And you look at surveys, and people are more seem to be more sympathetic to you know eliminating markets, for instance. Or eliminating capitalism, or whatever. But I think that that dissatisfaction is really with the existing economic system, and those I think are different things, right? So I think it's a dissatisfaction in a lot of ways with colonialism. I think it's a dissatisfaction with a system that, say, allows people to keep profits when they succeed but bails them out when they fail. I think it's a dissatisfaction with privilege. I think it's actually also a dissatisfaction with government, a sense that government isn't working for us or a sense that politicians can be bought and paid for. And so that's different than saying that there's a negative attitude towards buying and selling or toward getting a job um, where they're paid for their efforts and their creativity or towards, say, starting a business or towards becoming successful or even wealthy. I think those are different 
sort of things. And I think there's a, you know, there's a very real dissatisfaction with the current, say, economic order, but there's a lot of problems with the current economic order. And so I don't know that those, that dissatisfaction isn't warranted. I don't know that people get, you know, sort of like annoyed about their interactions with their barista at Starbucks. I don't know that that's really what's going on. And so I don't know that there's really this sort of like negative attitude towards markets per se. I had a question about inequality because I think that oftentimes when I hear people lament about the economic system that we have, one of the points that they bring up is that there's a growing inequality between the very wealthiest and those at the bottom. Is this a, a feature of, of the market system? Because I think that tends to be something that really bothers a lot of people who are observing. Yeah, I mean, so I think inequality is a natural, inevitable feature of not only markets, but of life. And my wife, Nona, who we met, is smarter than me. She's more attractive than me. She's more fit than me. Our marriage is rife with inequalities. Uh, and, and so certainly in a market society... You married up. I did. I did. I was, was, was very lucky. I, I'm benefiting from the inequalities in a lot of ways. But so certainly in a market society, though, some people have will have more and others will have less. It turns out, though, that when you look at the, the evidence, inequality is way worse in non-market societies than it is in market societies for a lot of reasons. One, it's much better to be poor in a market society than in a non-market society. The poorest in market societies are better off than the poorest in non-market societies. Uh, in fact, the poorest in some market societies, like, say, the U.S., are much better than the richest in some non-market societies. And you can sort of name a number of sort of non-markets, you know, less developed countries. And so even if inequality was as bad in, in the U.S. is as bad as they say, it's not the social problem that people seem to think it is because, you know, it's better to be poor here than it is to be poor anywhere else. And so that's one reason. Another reason, though, is that it turns out market societies are more mobile than non-market societies. And so in market societies, the rich become poor and the, the poor can become rich. And that's a feature of market societies. It's not that that kind of mobility is less prevalent and less present in non-market societies. And so, again, even if inequality was the problem that you know, was as bad as people thought it was in market societies, the sort of social costs associated with that, the social concerns associated with that aren't as mitigated by the fact that in market societies, the rich can become poor and the poor can, can become rich. But it turns out that when you look at the evidence, the economic inequality is actually worse in market societies. It's just genuine when you look at the measures, you look at things like Gini coefficients that sort of measure the gap between the rich and the poor in, in various countries, and non-market societies are much more unequal. And so that's it. And so I, I think that's, that'd be sort of my first pushback. I do think people are annoyed with inequality, but mostly, and this goes back to my earlier question, I think that they're annoyed when they believe that the people on the top didn't get there by their own sort of efforts. They, they didn't really earn what they have. And they believe that the poorest amongst us are artificially kept down. You know, I know that it gets expressed as a, an anger about inequality, but I really think it's a, when you sort of examine it, when you unpack it, it's really a concern about legitimacy. It's a concern, maybe a concern about transparency. 
most of us, most people, are okay with LeBron James being a millionaire, right? In fact, uh, many will say that he's probably underpaid, right? That LeBron James is, isn't rich enough given his talents and what he's, you know, what he's managed to accomplish. We're less comfortable with the CEO who led the company into bankruptcy getting the golden parachute. And we're not comfortable with the wealthy, say, buying privilege or political access. Right? But that's not a concern with inequality per se. Right? That's a concern with the legitimacy of the process that generated the wealth in the first place. Or a sort of a concern about you know, how transparent our systems are and the capacity, ability of people to take advantage of sort of the opportunities for rent-seeking and, and cronyism and, and privilege. And so that's a different sort of thing to my mind. And I think that's much more what's behind when people sort of cry inequality. This also goes back to your earlier point. How much of this is just a misunderstanding of terms, Dan? You point out the importance of storytelling and, and ethics in your work. How do we use better rhetoric to, to change this misunderstanding, if you have any thoughts on that? I don't know that it's rhetoric as much as it's inconsistency, right? And so I think that people, so let's say you're, you, know, you claim to be a liberal, you claim to be pro-market, and then you're not as hard as you maybe should be on cronyism. And I think people observe that and they go, well, maybe you're not really a liberal, but they also go, well, maybe this system, this market thing that you're defending isn't really this beautiful like space that you're talking about. Maybe it's something that is corrupt in the ways that we obviously see this colonialism is corrupt. And, and so I think that's, I don't know that that's a rhetorical problem, right? I think it's a consistency of applying or applying one's ideals and that, that if someone's going to defend markets. That means you defend the markets against people who would use regulations to stifle markets, but you also defend markets against people who would use government to give them unfair advantages in markets. If you do one and not the other, then I think it it makes it really hard for people to disentangle on the one hand what is what the market system is and what it delivers and what it does from the instantiations of the market system that they see that are rife with privilege and, you know, cronyism and all these other things. Really interesting. So this is a quote from your book, and this is, I'm referring to, do markets corrupt our morals? It says, our market relationships can develop into meaningful social relationships that can sometimes become deeper than our familial connections. Our market activities also bring us into fellowship with people across the globe and across ethnicities and nationalities that we might not otherwise encounter. The market thus makes it possible for diverse individuals to peacefully reconcile their plans and so create favorable conditions for feelings of friendship. This is really interesting because we've been talking a lot about how we you know, engage in civil discourse and how we foster civic friendships and relationships can you can you walk us through how markets do this yeah and so the sort of observation we make our book but it's not one that's unique to us right it's, it's sort of a, a feature of markets that's been recognized for a long time and so adam smith talks about how people working in the same trade can develop 
um, you know, because of their consistent sort of interactions with one another um, in that tree can develop, you know, feelings of, of friendship that can mirror, you know, brotherhoods. And so he, you know, made that observation. And, and that I think it comes down to the fact that we're social beings. And one of the things that, that markets do is they bring people together, right? And so they markets throw people who often with similar backgrounds of similar skills in spaces where they're working, where they work with, with one another. And because we're social beings, that frequent interaction often develops into more than just a commercial relationship. The, the Granovetta talks about our interactions in the market becoming overlaid with social content. And so just think about buying a house. If you bought a house, you know, you end up spending a ton of time with your realtor. And not just talking about the houses that you might want or not, but you end up having have interchanges about your family and your goals and your plans for the future. And that those lead into conversations with them about, you know, his or her family and her goals and, and, and her future. And that those that social aspect sort of is a sort of natural consequence of the underlying market interaction. And so that's so I think that's the way that markets you know, have been and can be social spaces. That's interesting. And um, as I read Tyler Cowen's book, The Complacent Class, and also recently Robert Talese's book, Overdoing Democracy, they both talk about this phenomenon of sorting, whereby we are increasingly putting ourselves into geographical spaces and, and virtual groups and putting ourselves into places that we're very comfortable with, which is good, right? The market provides opportunities for us to to match ourselves in ways that we prefer. At the same time, we've also become more more segregated and, and more polarized as a result, you know, whereby we consider those who are not part of our groups negatively sometimes. Is this just part of human nature? Is this something that the, the market system fosters or is it just that we are tribal as individuals and, and as people. And that's this is just one of the things that, that results from that. Have we become more segregated and polarized? I mean, it's, I, I guess I think just the opposite. As segregated and polarized as we are today, we're way less segregated and polarized than we were 50 years ago, 200 years ago. Sort of pick your time period. Right? Of course, we're sorting ourselves geographically and virtually into groups that were more comfortable with and that human nature maybe is to be comfortable with people who look like us and think like us and like the same thing. I think this is sort of, I think that's a part of human nature. I think that's probably always been true. But one of the things I think is underappreciated about the, the sort of social changes that have accompanied the threat of markets and the growth of markets is that they've changed what we mean when we say someone looks like us or thinks like us or likes the same things as us. That used to mean, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, what have you, that used to mean that the person is from my family or maybe from my village or maybe shares the same religion or race, right? Now that means something entirely different. Now that means uh, people who are fans of the Lakers or people who like Star Wars or people who listen to Beyonce or, or people who studied sociology in college or people who listen to, say, this podcast. And these groupings cut against and, and cut across racial and ethnic and national religious 
and even political lines, and these groupings aren't rigid. And so that's a different kind of segregation and polarization than the kind that we were worried about in the past, I think. Right? I think it's a kind of sorting that's less parochial and less problematic. Yeah, and in fact, in Robert Talese's book, he talks about how negative attitudes towards inter-party marriages is much higher now than you know interracial or interfaith or what have you, which is really interesting and, and does go to your point. Now, contrary to market critics, you, you maintain that the markets are moral spaces and that markets do make us moral. Can you elaborate on this? How do markets make us moral? So in our book, Jenny and I, as you say, find that the people in market societies will tend to be more moral. And by that, we mean more altruistic, less materialistic, less corrupt, more likely to be cosmopolitan, more likely to be tolerant of, of others, is what we mean by that, as well as more trusting and, and more trustworthy. And we have a particular kind of conception of morality that's going on there. And we find that market societies sort of positively associated with measures of, of morality along those margins. And so then the question is, what causes market societies to outperform non-market societies on these measures of, of morality? And we argue that there, there's, there's sort of two features of markets that allow them to act as moral training grounds in, in this way. The first is that market interactions are opportunities to learn about others. And so every trade, every single trade, is an opportunity to cheat. It's an opportunity for the person selling the good to lie about the thing that they're selling you, trick you into overpaying for something that they're trying to deliver. And it's an opportunity for the person paying for the good to promise to pay, but to not really pay. So every single market transaction gives us that opportunity. When a market interaction goes through, when it's successful, we learn something about the person that we're dealing with. If they cheat us, we learn that they're a cheat. If they don't cheat us, we learn that, well, at least in this interaction, that, you know, they've been an honest broker. If we have multiple interactions with them, we might learn that actually, you know, I know something about this person's character overall because given their ability to cheat me multiple times, they didn't, right? So I know something about you now. Same is true with in working with someone, right? That if you're in an office space with someone or you're in a factory with someone, you know, well, this is the kind of person that, that, you know, that's lazy or this is the kind of person that shirks or this is the kind of person when they're stressed, they're mean to their fellows, or this is the kind of person that handles stress in a way that's, that, you know, that I find appealing or what have you, that, that you learn that this is the kind of person with integrity or not, right? And so markets, in a lot of ways, reveal our moral characters. And so to the extent that we want to be associated with good people and don't want to be associated with bad people, markets give us an opportunity to sort those kinds of people out, right? That's one, you know, one way that markets act as moral training grounds. The other way that markets act as moral training grounds is that they not only reveal a character, but they give us an opportunity to reward people who behave in ways that we morally approve of and to punish people who behave in ways that we disapprove of. So the trustworthy mechanic owns a premium, right? We're willing to go to them even though they, they, they cost a little bit more. The trustworthy contractor owns a premium. We're in the pale of the, the trustworthy contractor more then we're willing to pay the one that cheated us or the one that cheated our friend or the one that, based on the Yelp review, seemed to have cheated, you know, multiple people or what have you. Um, the conscientious babysitter makes more money. And so markets give us an ability to reward 
good behavior. And so it markets incentivize good behavior. And because we're human beings are actually pretty good at detecting whether or not somebody's being fraudulently nice or is genuinely nice, it actually over time trains us into being nicer people. And so I think those are the two ways that markets sort of act as moral training ground. And that's why that's why we think at least you observe market societies outperforming non-market societies when you look at these measures of morality. Given the level of polarization that we see in, in our society, and I, you know, we talked about this earlier, that they're not necessarily along certain lines that they were before, but now it's sort of between parties and, and things like that. What are your thoughts on, on how, you know, we might leverage markets to help us to depolarize? So one of the implications of the argument that I've sort of been making and that Jenny and I make in the, in the book is that when we limit markets, that, that has, and this part has always been recognized, that that has economic consequences. But if we're right, that markets are spaces that promote morality, and a part of morality might be being more pluralistic or being more tolerant or being more cosmopolitan, then if we're, we're saying it's correct, then limiting markets also has a moral consequence in that it won't allow for the cultivation of these kinds of you know, the greater extent that markets are limited, the less likely that it's going to allow for the cultivation of these kinds of sort of positive uh, virtues. And so, you know, so if we're correct that markets make us more tolerant, then limiting markets is actually cutting against pluralism. For instance, is actually cutting, it's actually sort of pushing us to be sort of more pluralistic, at least in part. Right? So it might not be the only way. And so I, the sort of sort of the stick with the implication of the book, sort of one of the more sort of natural implications would be to say, well, if we allow we give markets more space, we limit markets less, if what we're saying about markets promoting morality, including pluralism, are correct, then you know, markets will likely cultivate those or give us space to cultivate those kinds of values. And so I think that's the way I would answer that that kind of question. Interesting, though, because I'm thinking that if, if we are to foster more pluralism and there are people who think that the market is excessive in certain areas and that we ought to cut back by accommodating those views, we will have to, in a way, limit the market and, and hence all the values and, and the morals that you're talking about might be limited in some way. So by fostering pluralism, we in turn might get less pluralism. That is, if part of pluralism means that we we kind of recalibrate and reduce how how much of the market system we see in our lives. Yeah, I mean, so to sort of put it in a soundbite, there are not just economic but moral consequences to restricting markets, and so we might decide that we want to pay those consequences, but we should be mindful of them as we go about thinking about doing that. I mean, sort of leave for another time, another debate, whether or not pluralism in any way is consistent with limiting market. If by markets what you mean is sort of individuals making choices about how they interact with one another. Just switching gears a little bit, what motivated you to, to study markets? What is it about your background or interests that 
got you into seeking to understand more about markets and how they they are formulated? The two reasons, and they, they sort of pushed at it from opposite direction. I won't say the first, but the first one I'll talk about is that I'm an economist by training. And I became an economist because I wanted to essentially understand why some people were poor. And that was my motivation for becoming an economist. And then you go into, you take economics, and one of the things that you quickly discover is that the economics in the textbook and the, the sort of the way that economics talks about markets, they describe a market that doesn't seem to exist, like it's unrecognizable to anybody who's actually experienced markets. They describe this sort of, sort of cold, sterile, efficient space populated by hyper-rational beings who are concerned only with maximizing utility and something like that, right? And so you look at that and you go, I don't know who these people are, and I don't know what this space is, right? And so one of the things that pushed me to try to, that sort of has led me to spend a lot of my career looking at markets is because I wanted to wanted to spend time trying to understand how it is that individuals actually experience markets as opposed to this sort of, you know, cold feature of discussion and, and model of a market that you, that you see in economics. And so that was one sort of reason that, that made me sort of interested in markets. The other reason is that there was this real disconnect between, how should I put it? So I always thought of markets as a space where, like, just from when I was young, even, although I had a period where I was, you know, but so, like, I, you know, when I was younger, I thought of markets as these sort of amazing spaces where buying and selling took place and you can sort of get what you wanted, right? So that was, that was awesome and that was cool and, and I liked, I liked that about markets. And then I went through this period where I was, you know, sort of read a lot of marks and I was sort of enamored with marks and he obviously had a really negative view of markets. And then I sort of spent some time looking at critiques of Marxism and realized and he became convinced that, that sort of his solution to the problem wasn't viable. And so that created for me a kind of intellectual dilemma, which is that it made it essential for me to try to understand how markets actually work. It was the, the kind of early view Marxism space where we get what we want. You know, with money at least, or, or the, the kind of Marxist view that markets are these spaces that are, you know, alienating and exploitative. Is that the true market, or is a market something else? That was sort of like the second reason that sort of the market has become like the central focus in my work. So it came as a result of uh, curiosity. Yeah. Wonderful. And you've done a lot of work in culture. I was wondering whether you'd like to reflect a little bit on the culture of markets beyond what we've talked about. You know, so I mentioned like saying, okay, the, the sort of more narrow reason is that economists don't talk about the market. When economists do talk about the market, they talk about a market that's unrecognizable. But one of the things that struck me as being true, particularly as somebody who moved from the Bahamas and now, um, you know, so I live in the United States, is how different markets are in different parts of the world. And that that difference to me, seemed to have less to do with, often had less to do with there being different rules around the markets or different institutional structures governing the markets, right? The, you know, market 
private property rules, law, those kinds of features that are critical for market existing exist in a lot of places in the in the world in more or less perfect ways. But nonetheless, markets look very different. They have different sounds and colors of people in those markets seem to be, you know, viewing different kinds of activities being successful, you know, speaking to the success of, as an entrepreneur or different kinds of practices as being legitimate or illegitimate or different kinds of interactions as being important or unimportant or different kinds of ceremonies around market interactions as being critical or not critical. Uh, and so those differences were striking to me. And again, as somebody, particularly as somebody who grew up one place and then moved to another, it was sort of very striking. And so I wanted to understand that difference and to make sense of that difference. And, and that I ended up in that work spending a lot of time with the work of Max Faber, who wrote what I think is both a, it's a flawed book about the culture of markets, but I think it's also an important book about culture of markets. It's the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. And he makes in there a particular observation that I think is, is critically important. Uh, it's that there are a variety of, of he calls it capitalisms, but essentially there are a variety of markets and that each market is animated by a particular spirit or, or set of spirits, right? There's a particular kind of ethos or value system or culture that sort of colors the different uh, markets that we observe. So my, my sort of interest was motivated by this, that sort of experience and then the, 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 the sort of the approach that I've taken to looking at it has been very barbarian in that way. And so how do you look, how do you discover, how do you find the economic spirits that are actually animating economic life in particular places. So how do we distinguish between the the right kind of culture around markets and I don't know if right or wrong are, are the right terms to use, but the sort of market culture that fosters prosperity, how do we distinguish those things if we're studying culture of markets across the board? I'm actually very resistant and critical of talking in terms of like the right culture or wrong culture. That there's a a lot of economists who talk about the relationship between culture and economy do speak in those kinds of terms, right? They talk as if there's certain kinds of cultural, you know, cultural tools that are useful for market life and there's certain kinds that are not useful for, for market life or whatever. There's good and bad cultures. The one Economists actually describes cultures as being progress prone or progress resistant, right? So I don't agree with that. The reason I don't agree with that way of thinking is because I don't think of culture as a as a tool, right? That culture doesn't have this feature of a toolkit. It's not this thing that that sort of we carry with us, and then when we need a particular cultural trait or something like that, we pull it out and use it, um, and that the thing we pull out might be good or bad for the task at hand. Like that's not the way culture works right that's not the way that if you know as somebody who you know we're all sort of you know belong to a certain culture who's been enculturated into a certain culture that's not how it travels with us right that the culture acts are essentially ways that we see the world and ways that we make sense of the world uh, and so in that vein i don't think it makes sense to talk about progress prone and progress resistant culture i think all cultures are have aspects of them i guess that one might say are seem to be, you know, progress resistant aspects of it that seem to promote creativity, innovation, whatever. I think all cultures have that capacity. What that looks like 
in particular places is because all human beings have those capacities. What that looks like in particular places, though, is going to differ based on, you know, the cultures in those different places. And so what culture speaks to isn't the capacity in, in some sense of, of people's being able to develop or not develop. What culture speaks to is their way in some sense development is going to look and the way they're going to think about the, that process and the way that they're going to pursue that process and what have you. And so it's less about what a culture can't and can't do. And it's much more about the way that people in a particular culture are going to approach that same thing versus the way people in another culture might approach that same thing and trying to understand where that sort of comes from. We can analyze different cultures, but we the thing that we ought not do is is to sort of compare them and you know for good versus bad that that kind of thing yeah we can well we should comparing them is fine it's scoring them that's the problem right like we shouldn't try to total up the the pro market or the pro democracy or the pro whatever aspects of a culture and total up the negative market or negative democracy or negative whatever aspects of a culture and then say this culture is good or this culture is bad right that doesn't say you can't compare but it says you shouldn't treat cultures as if you shouldn't treat cultural analysis as if you're checking boxes well the question i tend to ask all my guests is this are you optimistic about the future of liberalism or not do you think we will see a wider embrace of a liberal order or are you skeptical? Am I optimistic? James Baldwin has this line that says, if you're alive and you're pessimistic, it means that you've made life an academic matter. And so because I'm alive, I can't do that. And so therefore I can't be pessimistic. James Buchanan, you know, a Nobel laureate in economics whose work has been deeply influential on, on my work, said that when he looks at the past and where we've come from, he's optimistic. And when he looks at the future, he's more pessimistic. Right. And so I certainly share his optimism when I look back at the past. So just over three decades ago, we were, you know, there were Soviet style economies in multiple countries around the world. Decades ago, you know, certain people couldn't marry because of their, who they chose to love. Now the debate over markets isn't a debate between communism and Capitalism, it's data over what kind of market society we want to live in. One with more taxes or less taxes, one with more welfare programs or less welfare programs, one with more regulation or less regulation. But almost everybody, right, even the sort of staunchest critics of markets, seem to embrace markets, right? There's a different kind of debate that puts the question in, will we see a wide embrace of markets? Will we see a wide embrace of liberalism? I actually think, and this goes back to one of my earlier answers, I think it depends on whether or not liberals are consistent liberals or not. So I actually think it depends a lot more than we appreciate on where liberals are on issues like immigration and gay rights and racial justice and women's rights and civil discourse and criminal justice reform. I think it depends a lot more than we appreciate on where liberals are on things like build a wall or Black Lives Matter or Me Too. I think if liberals are truly cosmopolitan, then that will increase the likelihood that others will come to appreciate how important liberalism is to a vibrant, wealthy, cosmopolitan free society. And if we're not consistent liberals, 
if we're on the wrong side of these issues, then I think people will become suspicious and won't embrace liberalism. And so I think, so my optimism, I guess, is conditional on what liberals, how liberals defend liberalism. A conditional optimist. Thank you very much, Professor Storr. Really appreciate you taking the time to to join us. You know, our, our listeners may not know this, but you know, Virgil is a colleague of mine, someone I've known for a long time, and I reach out to when I definitely need someone to consult with on very important matters. So I appreciate you very much, Virgil. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind of Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.